Welcome to Threads of Healing, Conversations with the Wayward and the Wise. This is your host, Dr. Ila Munger, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Threads of Healing is the space for exploring what healing could mean by having deep conversations with wisdom keepers, doctors, artists, storytellers, fact finders and visionaries, we bring awareness to the voices who have answered their call to heal and to discover a new way of living, breathing and being in the world and will inspire you to do the same. So in 2014, I attended a mindfulness conference in Stellenbosch and I remember very clearly what an incredible experience it was for me. I was exposed to well-respected scientists and researchers in the field of mindfulness all over the world. And it was also then when I first met a woman that has become a really good friend, a woman who really embodies such open-heartedness, compassion and joy. The first woman on the African continent to be awarded a PhD in mindfulness. So today, I'm very honored to have her right here in the studio with me. Dr. Lucy Draper-Clark is a mindfulness mentor, a retreat facilitator, a researcher practitioner, and healer. She's also an environmental activist who is deeply dedicated to supporting others to cultivate their own contemplative practices. Lucy, I'm so thrilled to have you here in the studio with me today. Welcome to Threads of Healing. I'm so happy to be here. It's like having a cup of tea with friends. Let's talk about this word mindfulness. It's a really interesting word and not a word that I actually resonate with. You know, for me, it feels like the antithesis of what mindfulness is. What are your thoughts on this? Well, when I've explored the word um, from its original roots, so the Pali word is sati, and actually it's often translated as remembering. And so from more of the Buddhist mindfulness practice, it's about remembering our ethical guidelines and you know, working out whether what we're doing in each moment is harmful or helpful. And so mindfulness is really about coming back to the present moment again and again and choosing the path in which we, or choosing the way in which we want to lead our lives. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the present moment can be a really scary place because it's in the present moment that we become aware of the thoughts and the feelings that are often uncomfortable, that we avoid. And uh, it's almost like a default to move away from that which feels uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's why my own journey has taken me through mindfulness into the compassion and also then looking at contemplative engagement. So when we become mindful of what's happening within us, we also become mindful of what's happening on the outside and our relationship with that. And so often it's really painful. So the compassion practices have what free have, yeah, they're really where I've found the most growth, the ability to face things um, with an open heart 
and then to engage with life. Mm. And that's actually where I find my greatest joy. Mm. I love that word compassion. And perhaps it's about relating to what we're becoming mindful of from a more compassionate place. Mm. Yeah, there's certain definitions of mindfulness which do include being non-judgmental but also open-hearted. And I once read a model which spoke about sort of three steps. One, about dispassion. So we become quite um, balanced, living in a state of equanimity. But there's also a sense that we're not in relationship. Dispassionate feels quite removed, the quality of the witness. Whereas then if we move into compassion, it's about you know, suffering with or feeling with other people. And then, of course, the state of passion is where our hearts open and we're guided from the heart or the heart-mind into the work that we choose to do. Oh, that's beautiful. And that feels like a natural process that you have become more aligned to in teaching and the way that you are facilitating processes. It feels like you're moving through the three aspects of passion. Very much, yeah. I mean, I only ever teach what I have found is helpful for me and it allows me just to be a lifelong learner, which is just fantastic. I mean, in the last few weeks, I've been learning how to facilitate dance as a new way of exploring embodied practices. And yeah, I've kind of developed a a sort of sense of how we can move through these stages and cycle through these stages in a way that's most helpful. So we start with a sense of preparation and particularly reconnecting the mind with the heart and the body. And then once we've prepared, whether that's with qigong or yoga or dance or drumming, anything that's really physical and embodied, then we can settle into stillness. Mm. And that's where the contemplative practices come in. And of course, I teach mainly mindfulness, but I respect so many other contemplative practices, whether that's journaling, creative arts. I find they just open us to a sense of engaging with others in a more empathic way. Mm. And then once we've contemp, you know, once we've um, become more in touch, then we engage. So we put our practice into action. Mm. And that's really the point. It's the journey of connection that I suppose um, these practices support. Absolutely. You know, that kind of mysterious thing that can happen when we're really in a deep conversation or in a, in a place where, I don't know, part of us is able to connect but I think that's where what I've loved about listening to the others that you've interviewed is, you know, holding, creating that healing space so that people can find their own way to heal, mm. their own way to return to a sense of wholeness. Mm. You know, we often associate uh, contemplative practices with Eastern philosophy or, you know, Buddhism or uh, yoga and, you know, practices that somehow um, come from a different place. Mm. But you've spent a long time living in Africa and Botswana and become really aware that contemplative practices are very much part of African indigenous wisdom. 
and have brought that into your work. I find that really so powerful. Mm. Well, it was an incredible honor. I was awarded a grant to do some research with African contemplative practitioners last year. So we gathered a group of storytellers and drama therapists and drummers, and we went to a retreat center in Northwest, and we spent three really incredible days together where each of the facilitators offered their practice, and then we reflected on how it had moved us and shifted us. And I could see so many of the parallels with what I've learned and loved in, from the Eastern traditions. Um, so to be able to find the underlying threads, mm -hmm. the underlying practices that just get us in touch with our humanity was uh, an incredible gift, a real honor. And one of the participants, Zola Nashimba, he spoke about how different parts of the world hold different qualities of wisdom and how the South American traditions really hold the wisdom of the earth. So Pachamama and all those wisdom traditions. And then how the West has held the wisdom of the material world. And the East is the holds the wisdom of healing. And of course, Africa holds spirit. Wow. And that ability to communicate beyond what we can see and touch, but what we often feel and know to be present. That sense of ancestors supporting us, guiding us. And always having yeah, someone else to turn to for advice, not feeling that we have to make all the decisions alone. Yeah. yeah. What I really appreciate about African practices is that they are so embodied. They are so grounding and we can almost feel it in the energy of the land here, that it's almost like a, an anchoring that happens here. It's, it's a feeling of home that many people who travel here from other parts of the world um, you know, experience and, and feel. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the practices um, of drumming, of dancing, uh, are a beautiful way to experience spirit within us or life force within us. And it feels that it's something that we are invited to come back to, mm. just that this this feeling of, of consciousness or who we are is not something, it's not transcendent, it's actually embodied that this energy moves in the other direction too that needs to. And you discovering this and enjoying this feeling in your life too, just in your own process and in your dancing, mm. in your teaching too. Absolutely. And I suppose the other thing that I loved about exploring um, with the African contemplative practitioners is that it's all done in community. And, you know, that's where sometimes I feel, I, I guess the, the Eastern traditions, the, the sense is that we go into a cave and meditate alone. Um, and it can be an incredible way to, you know, access a sense of connection with all things. And yet, if we look at our daily life, where we have most struggles and where we need most experience and practice is how to relate to the people who are around us, how to work within community, to be skillful within our own families. 
So again, that's what I really respected about learning um, from other facilitators about yeah the embodiment and the sense of that social connection. And by the end of the few days together, there was such a deep attunement and an incredible upwelling of joy. There was a real sense that we were, yeah, I mean, it sounds um, overused, but that we were all one. We were all together on this journey of life. Oh, that's so beautiful. And the experiences that just support that feeling, you know, dancing together, moving together, singing together, drumming together, breathing together. And one of the practices that really deeply moved me was Isikatamiya. Um, so this dance that has come through from mining communities and, um, you know, during the era of apartheid and how people had to move together in order to lift incredibly heavy things um, and to make sure like massive pieces of metal didn't drop on their feet, you know, in the mines and and there was such a visceral, embodied understanding of the suffering, the struggle from that era that it moved me very profoundly. And I'm not from South Africa, but of course, during my own um, university education, that was the time when South Africa was seeking its uh, freedom. And so I just remember being connected and inspired by all that was happening in terms of, you know, um, yeah, removing those shackles of apartheid and colonialism. And so to be part of a dance which contained both that deep understanding of suffering but also the empowerment and the joy that can come from moving together, from sounding together, it just, I don't know, it allowed me to really sense how we hold those two things, sorrow and joy, together in one place, in one heart. You are very passionate about working with students and you've been involved in a project called Drama for Life at WITS. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Mm. So I've had different, um, yeah, working with different students at WITS. Drama for Life was the last couple of years and before that um, I was also working at School of Education. And it's been, yeah, amazing, The particularly the Drama for Life students because there's an understanding within that department and that modality that we use our body, we use our heart as well as our mind. You know, sometimes the academy is very focused on the intellect and we forget all the wisdom that we have within other parts of ourselves. But that's where I've so enjoyed drama for life um, and the fact as well that they take that willingness to explore the issues of racial, social justice, um, and more and more into the environmental justice arena as well. And, you know, um, allow people to engage with these issues at a very emotionally um, inspiring level through drama, through poetry, through performance. Um, Whereas sometimes when we read an academic journal article, it just doesn't touch our heart. It doesn't motivate us into action. Mm. I love that. And, you know, it, it really touches on something that Sivan was saying in, in his conversation, um, that he was always kind of 
driven not so much by anger in his activism, by, but by curiosity and something deeper and compassion. And it feels that, that it's the same for you. Mm. Yeah, very much. I mean, I do I respect the role of anger. I think it's a, an empowering emotion. But I see all emotions as another language, another source of information. And actually on the dance training, we talked about emotion as energy in motion. So how it moves through us. And anger um, invites us like to step up, to be courageous. But what I've found with anger is that it contains the energy of um, fire. So it burns out and it burns us out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you and I have spoken before about working with um, people in NGOs, in activist arenas, and trying to offer some practices which allow us to be sustainable. Because if we can only do our work for a few years, then we lose that ability to see the changes because changes often take a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've been exploring, how compassion it has the same ability to really face causes of suffering, to understand why people cause harm, and to work both at relieving the harm and also supporting those who have been harmed. So it feels to me like it's a more holistic energy that enables us to keep on moving forward even when times are really difficult. Mm. And the work of Rebecca Solnit has inspired me, you know, one of her books, Hope in the Dark. Oh, and you've shared that with me. Thank you so much. It is such a gift on so many levels. Yeah, it really allowed me to kind of settle back into the fact that this is long, slow work and it continues long after our lifetime. In fact, my own Buddhist teacher, Akon Rinpoche, offered us the language of the thousand-year vision. And to start with, I couldn't understand really what it meant, but then I realized it's all about passing on. It's all about handing the baton to the next generation. It's all about learning and then teaching and not holding on in an egocentric way. So it allows us just to keep moving forward, but um, yeah, without that sense of attachment. So moving forward from love, from compassion, and from that yeah, deep understanding that harm is being caused. And it's being caused by people who are hurt. Mm. So then we don't have to throw anyone out of our hearts. We mm. can yeah, engage in a way that is all-encompassing. Mm. So compassion invites understanding of the other, but it also invites self-compassion. Mm. Yeah, compassion is, I mean, it's the aspiration of almost all spiritual and religious traditions. And having explored it both from a research perspective but also from my own practice, I realized just how challenging it is. The self-compassion part, right? The self-compassion, yes, primarily. Um, and then also the compassion for people beyond our immediate group. So I've kind of explored um, five different stages of compassion. So the first is being sensitive to suffering and recognizing suffering. And of course, we can only recognize it if we've identified it in ourselves. Mm. 
So whether it's anger that we're experiencing, whether it's um, shame, whether it's frustration or grief, we need, we can only recognize that in another once we've experienced and named it in ourselves. So that even that first step is incredibly challenging. And then the next step is to empathize. And that empathy, you know, there's a, a lovely neuroscience term of empathic resonance, mm. um, which doctors know, you know, you can feel what your patients are feeling. But that activates the neural pathways for pain. So empathy is, is very, very draining. It emotionally drains us. And sometimes within care professions, you hear the term compassion fatigue, but I, um, have, I, I think it's better described as empathy fatigue. It's when we're feeling other people's feelings, and particularly in South Africa where there's been so much trauma, when we're constantly um, engaged with people who've experienced trauma, we get vicarious um, trauma ourselves. So even empathy is a difficult step. And it can be contained, we start to contain it with a real understanding of the human condition. So that involves two aspects. First of all, that everyone suffers. It's not that we're doing life wrong. It's just the nature of being human. And the second thing is to really hold on to that idea of, um, of impermanence that everything does change. So even when we're in the midst of deep grief or suffering, as many of us have experienced during this pandemic time, we know it will pass. So we kind of hold that. And that's what I've um, appreciated about the compassion practices is it gives us a kind of firm center from which we um, can hold space for others. And then we shift into compassion. Mm -hmm. And whether that's compassion for the self, which, you know, as we've discussed, is um, it's very painful because we're having to recognize and name what we're feeling. Mm. And there's a, a term that, uh, or a, a, a metaphor that I was reading this morning, um, how when firemen open a door to go in and put out a fire, the oxygen rushes in and the fire rushes out. And compassion is just like this. When we offer love and care for our pain, the pain rushes back at us. And then there's this resistance again, this closing off again. Yeah. How do we just stay open? Yeah, because the staying open is what allows the healing. Mm. But to stay open to ourselves, to both be the one experiencing pain and the one holding space for that experiencer, it requires a, a lot of, um, yeah, like a, a patience with ourselves and, and willingness to keep moving in and opening that door to the pain. But once we do, once we can learn self-compassion, then compassion for others becomes second nature. It's almost instinctive. And... Of course, the compassion, um, you know, teachings from the Eastern traditions is where I'm more familiar. But there's this sense of how it's evolutionary necessary. Like we need compassion just to look after our young because as uh, mammals, 
our young are, are helpless when they're born. So we have to have compassion to look after them. But then if we cultivate that innate evolutionary capacity, then we can open our compassion out to all beings, living beings, but also the, the natural world. And it takes us beyond this sort of division of in-group, out-group. Mm. Oh, I love that. So compassion is tough. I'll never forget a practice that you shared at a retreat that we co-facilitated last year called Still Action. Mm. And this practice has stayed with me, just so profound for me personally, and it's one that I, that I share with, uh, with my patients often. And you asked us to wrap our arms around ourselves and then just gently actually stroke our hand with the other in a very gentle, loving way as if we were comforting somebody else. And there was just something about that embodied visceral experience of self-compassion that was just so profound. Mm. Yeah, it's such a simple practice. But our body doesn't know whether we're touching it or whether our dearest loved one is, is stroking or holding us. So it's able to receive that sense of care and safeness. Yeah. And that's also something I know we've talked about is how do we create these circles, these um, expanding circles of safety? Because when we do, then we can... we we can allow our vulnerability to arise and within that moment is where the healing also takes place. Yeah, because re healing actually requires a feeling of safety or perception that we are safe. Mm. Absolutely. So we first learn safety from our caregivers. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, um, and of course, just taking your mind back and recognizing whatever your childhood experiences were someone looked after you as a baby otherwise we wouldn't still be here mm. so kind of really looking back into the fact that we're born into an environment of compassion and there may also be hardships of course many people have experienced very traumatic childhoods but the fact that we're here means that someone looked after us and that can be like a very settling sense of remembering. Mm. And I guess it kind of circles us back to mindfulness as remembering, mm. remembering that we're cared for, remembering that other people have looked after us and will continue to do so if we ask. And that's what I've been learning these last few years. We've been exploring um, a whole new way of bringing mindfulness into uh, daily life through a process of mindful communication and it's work I've been doing with Felicity Hart um, taking Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication and bringing it together with mindfulness and allowing ourselves very safe spaces to practice communicating with others from a place of what we're feeling and what our needs are and then, yeah, having the courage to make those requests, yeah, which we're often trained out of. Absolutely. And that goes back to another principle of healing, that healing is relational. Mm. We are relational beings. So how can we be in compassionate, understanding relation to the other 
mm. and communicate from that place. And oh, that's really powerful work, Lucy. Well, there's a lovely image that's used in the nonviolent communication, which is the infinity sign mm -hmm. and how our communication is all about developing that relationship. Whereas if we look at how we're trained, and it's particularly in the academy, we're taught like critical thinking, we're taught to um, be the best, you know, that sense of status and one-upmanship and winning. And actually that's not what settles our hearts and what allows us to develop in, in new ways. We need to be in relationship. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel very honored that I've been asked to do some of this work within the academy because it's definitely a place that could do with more healing. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that I really admire about you and appreciate about you, I mean, there are many, <laughs> is the fact that you really live with such integrity with what you teach. And, you know, you were sharing with me earlier how um, just after the lockdown period, you spent a lot of time just really quiet and really in deep contemplation and connection with yourself. And I know certainly for myself, this is something that um, I don't spend enough time with, um, but that I crave, mm -hmm. you know, because the, I, sometimes I, I, I miss myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that connection with that silent place. Um, that's, that's something that's really important, right? Mm -hmm. It's just making that space, um, giving yourself permission to take that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, like it, I, I struggled with it. You know, taking that time off felt like I wasn't stepping up. During the hard lockdown, I wanted to contribute and I was offering practices online. But then they came to a stage where I just really needed to hibernate mm -hmm. and find out what was coming through next for me. And, um, yeah, it's been, I mean, I feel very lucky to have been able to do that. Um, but I've been, yeah, exploring dance, doing some painting, journaling every day, and trying to get a sense of where all the different threads that have interested me can actually be woven together. Because sometimes I feel I'm just, um, yeah, like just all over the place. Like I'm interested in this <laughs> and I'm interested in that. And I, I'm not quite clear on the, the, the river or the direction when, in which the river of my life is flowing. And then every now and again a sort of integration happens and... I feel I can move forward again. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I give myself permission, but I also struggle with, with the permission because I feel most alive when I'm engaged and when I'm with other people. Mm. So retreat is necessary, but it's not easy. Right, yeah. So speaking of retreats, Lucy, I mean, you offer such beautiful retreats and online retreats and online processes. Tell us a little bit about what you currently are offering and where people can find you and engage with your work. Mm. Well, in terms of online, and also we're looking to see whether we can do them in person and online, which is a challenge. Um, but I offer eight-week programs developing basic mindfulness skills, but within a framework of compassion. So the, there's, that is definitely woven in. 
And then for anyone who's done an eight-week mindfulness, we move forward into an eight-week compassion training. Mm. Um, and again, that you know, I'm exploring doing that online so that people globally can access it, but also um, to do that in person because compassion work is so relational that I, I do miss other bodies in the studio. And then the work that I started developing last year was, I've called it awareness in action. So it's really much, really about taking our contemplative practice into the world, uh, contemplative engagement. And the idea was to support people who are working in service of others and give them, you know, skills and techniques so that they can be sustainable and so that they can yeah, really feel their work is not just sustainable, but is sustaining them. Mm. So kind of reconnecting back with what their values were, what their passion is. So those are three eight-week courses. And then I've developed a series of retreats, which I love to do. And um, usually I, I do them out in Northwest at the Tara Rockpa Center. Mm. Every year begins with an intention-setting retreat. And it's been so fun for me to see how my own facilitation has changed depending on what I'm learning. So this year, for example, we explored much more from Joanna Macy's work, Active Hope, and we brought you know, issues of climate justice into the retreat. And looking back, I find it so amazing because when we shared our ideas together, we could all see this very quiet world, which still included technology. It wasn't like going back to, you know, the um, agrarian times, but there was a sense of just doing the things that we loved and working in community um, and being able to access information that we needed. And suddenly during lockdown, I thought, my goodness, this is what we saw. This wasn't the way we wanted to see it. But there was something so profound about the image that had come to mind and, and seeing this much quieter world. So the intention retreat has, yeah, I've loved sharing that with others, particularly when people come back year after year mm -hmm. and we, we kind of travel the path together. And then the mindful communications, that's a, a newer line of work, which I love. Um, and then I work with yoga teachers as well, so that we can take that embodied ancient tradition and allow people time to um, explore meditation. Because Western yoga has kind of been extracted a bit from its ancient roots. Um, and it's focused just on the asana, the, the movement practice. But what we're doing is is bringing the ancient back into the modern so that we move our bodies so that when we sit, we can be, feel comfortable. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I love, I love co-facilitating the retreat that we ran together, still action. It's still very, very close to my heart and I hope that we'll be able to do that again. Absolutely, soon. yeah. So where can people find you, your website? Well, my website is simple. It's just my name, lucydraperclark.com. Wonderful. Lucy, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really inspiring and just wonderful just to be in your presence again. So thank you so much. I just love talking to you, Ela. It's such a treat. There's always a sense of learning something in that conversation as if a little bit of magic happens when we're together so thank you for inviting me i feel very honored oh. 
Thank you for listening to Threads of Healing, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ila Manga. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to leave a review and tell us what you think. If you have found this podcast inspiring and useful, and you know someone who would too, please feel free to pass this along.